We want a fireworks theory of evolution. The last 2,000 million years a slow evolution. They are the smoke and ashes of bright but very rapid fireworks. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Oh yeah, baby, George Henri Joseph Edouard Le Maître. <laughs> wow, that yeah. is quite the pronunciation. Yeah, born on the seventeenth of July, eighteen ninety-four. A Belgian Catholic priest, mathematician, astronomer, and professor of physics at the Catholic University of Louvain. A legend, and if you you're a fan, aren't him, you? Oh my gosh, Jamie! This dude, this dude, not only as a uh, as a when he was doing his PhD, he was taught by Mister Prime Numbers himself, Charles <laughs> de la Vallée Pazin. Oh, I've always wanted to be called Mister Prime Number. Hasn't happened yet, Mister Prime Number. He then <laughs> went on to hang out with the great Arthur Eddington, who's becoming a regular call out on the show i believe when he was at cambridge and then he hung out with harlow shapley big shap or of he of dark things in the sky <laughs> i love it 1927 in the annal de la société scientifique de bruges uh, which is of course the annals of the society scientific society of brussels he mm. published one of the most influential papers of all of time all time 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 it's called un univers homogène de masse constante et de rayon croissant rendant compte de la vitesse radiale des nebules extragalactiques why do the french always have to put a croissant in everything <laughs> yeah, that, that, he has you know ma- I mean? amazingly got a croissant in there. Um, that is, the homogenous that's got universe. To be a, that's got to be a practical joke. Someone said, "I bet you can't put a croissant in this title." <laughs> and he's, he's like, "Watch he me, watch me." Homogenous universe of constant mass and growing radius, accounting for the radial velocity of extragalactic nebulae, as I'm sure all the listeners realised who could speak French and understood my perfectly executed French. (laughs) So, of course, this was a new idea at the time that the universe was expanding and he derived that from general relativity. And uh, this was obviously later be called to be called Hubble's law, which is a little bit unfair because it should really be called Lemaitre's law. But, it should um, be, yeah. But there we go. But uh, Lemaitre, he was the first person to provide an, an estimate of this expansion rate. But Hubble was the first person to really confirm it by observation. And his his sort of estimation two years later was a lot more accurate. So that's why it's known as the Hubble constant. And and just as a little side note, because actually this will play into something I'm going to say slightly later on. In 1922, so a little bit earlier, Alexander Friedman proposed an expanding universe. So it was actually Friedman that came up with the expanding universe idea. So 
Lemaitre didn't lose out that, that much, really. But because it could have been called the Friedman Telescope or Lemaitre Telescope, in the end, it ended up being Hubble being made super famous by the telescope and the constant named after him. But uh, there you go. Yeah, uh, but Lemaitre it. was the first person to identify that the recession of nearby galaxies can be explained by a theory of the expanding universe. And Einstein was horrified by this. Wasn't happy. It, no, he wasn't happy. He turned around and said, your calculations are correct, but your physics is atrocious. Where like was that. Einstein from? He was from Switzerland. And who knows what the Swiss taught like? That's yeah, just a I mean, mystery. It's definitely a mystery. Where is Switzerland? We just don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so his old mentor, Eddington, decided that he was going to start singing the praises of his old student and pushed his work into the English language. Because obviously, because Lemaitre was writing not in the primary astronomy language of English. No. He, his ideas weren't getting as, as big attraction as they else, you know, could have done, could have got, had he been writing in sort of more established journals and etc. But right. so, yes, Eddington was pushing him. And then after being invited to London to share his latest thought, he then published this thought as the primeval atom. In Ooh. a in nature, and uh, yes, and that and that nature article you can still go and look at it on nature, and it's called in 1931. This is the beginning of the world from the point of view of quantum theory. It's by my toilet. I don't know about anyone else. Well, I tell you what, I'm going to read the the abstract because it's absolutely genius. Here we so, go. Sir Arthur Eddington states that, philosophically, the notion of beginning of the present order of nature is repugnant to him. I would rather be inclined to think that the present state of quantum theory suggests a beginning of the world very different from the present order of nature. Thermodynamical principles from the point of view of quantum theory may be stated as follows. Energy of constant total amount is distributed to discrete quanta. The number of discrete, distinct quanta is ever increasing. If we go back in the course of time, we might find fewer and fewer quanta until we find all the energy in the universe packed in few or even a unique quantum. Matt is available for all speaking at weddings, bar mitzvahs, and funerals. Thank you very much, and for ADSR type recordings. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, Einstein remained dubious, but he was kind of coming round to this idea, and so he he was starting to be a little bit more encouraging and saying, "Yeah, there's something in this." And but by 1933, George Lemaitre was a world-famous scientist, and everyone in the world was saying, gosh, this is such a great idea. Einstein had been won over, but there was a few in the establishment that weren't happy, Jamie. And, of course, right, one of the okay. big ones was Mr. Fred Hoyle. Yes. Another very, very famous English astronomer uh, and also sci-fi writer of some note, and he would take the mickey out of this primeval atom, this unique quantum 
and he would say, ah, it's, well, it's the whole idea of, let's just call it the Big Bang. And uh, <laughs> and he said that on a BBC radio show, and of course, that's what we call it today. There we the, go, the, it's the stuck. Big, the Big Bang, the big bang Theory. Literally and then everyone's like, oh, how can you get a Big Bang from such yeah. a tiny point? And how could anyone well, hear a bang back then? Well, the, the funny thing is, you know, this is a. It makes you realise this has only happened in the last hundred years, and people like Einstein were not convinced by it. So it just goes to show what an absolute legend Lemaitre was, right? Complete. Now, remember, I talked about Alexander Friedman. Yeah, he was the guy that came up with the whole idea of an expanding universe. Well, get this for a coincidence. Guess who else was born on July the seventeenth? Oh God, go on then. Wendy Laurel Friedman. Now I must Shut I must the confess front door. It's it's actually spelt differently. It's Friedman, Alexander Friedman, and Wendy Laurel Friedman. So I am Gosh. kind of stretching it a little bit. Shoot. But she, yes, born on the 17th of July 1957. Happy birthday, Wendy. She was famous for measuring the Hubble constant. The circle's complete. So her team were the team behind using the Hubble telescope to get a breakthrough reading of the Hubble constant. In other words, they constrained it to a point where everyone was now convinced that the universe not only was expanding, but expanding faster and faster. In other yes. words, the sort of dark, the start, the start of taking dark energy very, very seriously, and uh, yeah, so that was considered a breakthrough, and it was, of course, one of the major goals of the Hubble Telescope itself. So, happy birthday, Wendy, and well done. Happy birthday, Wendy, for being an absolute legend and somehow tying in with the whole history of the expanding universe. Absolutely incredible, incredible. A little bit of a story that follows on from our story about Copernicus and the bit of the disastrous week in UK space where none none of the new Copernicus satellites, none of the Sentinels had come our way in the UK. Uh, Absolutely uh, none. Zilch. None. Zilch. But uh, all the other sort of minor contracts coming in, and and the UK are winning some of them, like uh, congratulations to the UK-based... Teledyne E2V, who were selected to build the, uh, to use their image sensors, their CCDs, in the heart of a lot of the instruments uh, of those satellites. Of course, they their CCDs are used in things like New Horizons to take yes. pictures of Pluto and stuff like that. So they, they make incredible scientific uh, sensors. And yes, that's a UK-based um, success story. Even though, of course, they're obviously owned by an international company. But hey, yeah. who isn't these days? Can't can't have everything. And of course, a congratulations must go out to our old guest, old Bobby Z, Robert Zubrin. Ah, Bobby, yes, yeah. Voyager Space Holdings announced this week that they have acquired Pioneer Astronautics, which of course is uh, Robert Zubrin's company. And uh, he's just he just won a contract for NASA to help develop uh, human life sustainable resources on the moon. And uh, so obviously, yes, this big venture capitalist space based venture capitalist company have have uh, bought into old Robert Zubrin's idea. And so that's quite cool, isn't it? Congratulations, Bobby Z. Congratulations. Well done, Robert. Yeah. Uh, Jamie, I want to talk about two science stories this week. 
Okay. Um, one of them is about... It's going to blow your mind a little bit. Well, um, it always does. And I'm going to call it Science Breakthrough of the Week. <laughs> it's my huge new, it's, my, it's, it's, it's a huge one, isn't it? This is my new section. <laughs> yeah. <I know. laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's a published by H.U., L. McCullough and M. Chi et al. Quantum correlations between light and the kilogram mass mirrors of LIGO. LIGO. <laughs> so the idea behind this, Jamie, is, you know, you know that old joke about there's an electron caught speeding and, the, and he winds down his window and the policeman says, do you know how fast you were going? And he goes, no. And he goes, you were going 80 miles an hour and the, and the electron looks up at the policeman and goes, ah, oh, damn it, I'm lost now. But that, that's oh. a joke about the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. <laughs> yeah. As, as, well you, as, well, as well you know. And it kind of puts a limit on the precision that you can measure the position or the momentum of, a, of an object. So that's the right. more precise you get its position, the less precise you get its momentum and all those sort of things. And uh, this is known as the standard quantum limit. And obviously with LIGO, which is an incredibly sensitive piece of equipment, they're down at this quantum limit. In other words, they're trying to measure the position of the mirrors and they're trying to measure the, the momentum of the light and all that kind of stuff. Hmm. But as they get down to this quantum limit, it's very, very difficult because of the properties of quantumness itself. Seems yes. crazy, but... If you use light as a, if if you somehow can find a correlation between the mirrors and the light and this kind of quantum limit and between them, you can actually surpass the quantum limit. So it, 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 it's to find a correlation between the position, momentum, and uncertainty of the object, like the mirror. And the photon number phase uncertainty of the light that's being reflected off it. So if you can somehow correlate those two, and that's the theory anyway. And these uh, experimenters have actually gone to LIGO and performed an experiment and and actually confirmed that you can actually do this, that you can actually get lower than the quantum limit, which means you're now measuring with unbelievable accuracy. You just thought it. Yeah, well, they use this thing that's really, really amazing concept called squeezed vacuum light. And this is where the light has an average amplitude of zero. And they've been using that. And obviously that means that they're able to, I mean, a God knows how, but it's it's they're able to use that to correlate with the movement of the mirrors and use this sort of squeezed vacuum states to kind of work out well, once they've removed all the classical noise, they've they've shown that it's just it, that you can get three decibels below the standard quantum limit. My God! So, so it looks like if they if the uh, if there's some other improvements, which obviously includes things like removing classical noise, hmm. which is all the normal sort of stuff, getting down to cryogenic temperatures and all the atoms jiggling around and just all yeah. that kind of normal noise. Um, then you'll be able to use this technique so that we'll be able to observe even smaller gravitational waves as they make their way through the um well as they as they wobble the earth it's going to open up a lot of doors matt in the space world put it that way do you want to hear what dennis martinoff of birmingham university said 
Yes, please. And Just a few years ago, this type of quantum behaviour would have been too weak to be observed, but new measurement techniques are now enabling us to go beyond these limits. Not only that, but the approach taken by LIGO scientists in these experiments means that future improvements and upgrades to the instruments can be made with increased confidence that they will yield the improved sensitivity that we're looking for. For any listeners that are confused, Matt is actually from Birmingham. So there we go. That's just how I used to talk before yeah. I developed a much more uh, southern accent. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> do you want to get into a bit of space politics? Oh, do I? J- Jamie, do you love Dmitry Rogozin? Probably more than most Russian space legends. <laughs> I think Dmitry Rogozin or Rogozin is uh, pretty value for money. He just seems to be a bit of a kind of rogue. Yeah. So he's been out dissing the NASA space program this week on uh, Russian TV, basically. Right. And uh, people have been translating what he's been saying on the TV program, and it's not particularly flattering to the uh, NASA. So hmm. this is a big political project on American partners are retreating from the principles of cooperation and mutual support and treating Artemis like a NATO project. So yeah, he's not, yeah. So he's sort of saying he did, there was some kind of alluding to things like uh, they're treating going to the moon, like their invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq, that kind of thing. While at is... the same time bragging <laughs> about recent discussions with top Chinese officials. Mm. Oh, my God. So, yeah, Russia and China look like they're going to get a club together and build a lunar scientific base. Now, I can't help feeling that that, that, that kind of partnership between the Russians and the Chinese is all going to end in tears for the Russians. Well, uh, yeah, it's not a great time, is it? To well, uh, I mean, lo- lots uh, America now uh, trying to get everyone to turn their back on China. It's it's not it's not going well. No, so in other words, the Chinese will will be going. Yeah, Russians come come and show us everything you've got, and then once Russia have shown China everything they've got, it'll be like bye bye Russia. Who knows? I just think it's not great, is it? It's not great that it the world great. after. After everything that's happened at the International Space Station, of course, Jim Bridenstine's still going on about what great partners Russia are. He's he's much, much more measured than Dmitry. Yeah, um, a little bit. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but then, yeah, get get this. He, Rogozin then went off to slag SpaceX off. Oh, of course so, he did. Not only was he moaning that the Americans are deliberately using trade sanctions to stop other countries, countries including europe getting into the uh, commercial space game he then went on to uh, basically say that uh, all the americans are bigging up their new spacecraft the the dragon etc he says but you know they're nothing compared to the soyuz ms they're at the beginning of their journey an old horse won't spoil the furrows is what he said in right. other words yeah the soyuz ms in space one must run not after beautiful goods with wonderful labels under the music of Bowie, but one must lean first and foremost on well-functioning systems 
especially when it comes to people's lives. Listen, Dimitri, say what you want about SpaceX and NASA, but do not mention Bowie, (laughs) all right? (laughs) I knew that would get under your skin. Yeah. Now, SpaceX, in a completely different story, they've invited uh, the members of Koryalov, the great designer. They've uh, Uh invited Andrei Koryalov, his grandson, and his family to visit the SpaceX factory once uh, quarantine is over. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. And not only that, uh, they've been showing off their little pictures of their little satellite dishes that are going to pick up Starlinks. That's right. Yeah, they've got um, they've got the old Starship SN five that looks like it's going to do a static fire and possibly, and this will be immense, a hundred and fifty meter hop attempt. I will be waiting with bated breath for that. Yeah, and at the end we'll talk about some launches this week, of which SpaceX have another first record breaking launch attempt. Of course, but they there's do. some great ones. So after the interview, but. Um, I want to follow up on podcast 153, which, as you know, is one of my favourite ever stories. really is. The grapefruit-sized black hole that might be in our solar system. Oh, my God. I just love this story. So we were talking about astronomers looking for Planet 9. So Planet 9, the reason why they think it's out there is because you've got these trans-Neptunium objects in the Kuiper Belt and they're being shepherded into odd, odd orbits. So Mike Brown, who was the person that demoted <laughs> Pluto in yeah. the first place, he <laughs> yeah. he's basically, he was the first person that said, look, it might be this large planet that is shepherding these objects. However, other, other things have come out, like a swarm of objects, a debris field, or even statistical confirmation bias might be causing people to think that there's this planet nine and they've been looking for it for years now and they haven't found it so um back on 153 we talked about jacob schultz of durham university we did james unwin at the university of illinois chicago and they published that it might be a primordial black hole and of course, they're they're formed during the early rapid expansion phase of the universe, kind of tiny eddies in space time that become these tiny black holes that shrink from Hawking radiation over time. And they, uh-huh. of course, they might be in such vast quantities that they explain dark matter or even fast radio bursts so these things are yeah frbs these things are currently you know very very sought after objects i mean it's highly likely that they're neither of those things but they could be so this paper suggested we've got one of these lurking at the edge of the solar system now you've got to admit that is exciting in itself but this week Dr. Avi Loeb and Frank B. Baird, who are uh, professors at the science, uh, 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 professors of science at Harvard, and mm. their undergraduate student Amir Siraj, have developed a method to search for black holes in the outer solar system. Huge. Yes. Well. Well. Tiny. In fact. 
for the for its mass. <laughs> yeah. Grapefruit sized. Good. So yes, the study Good. suggests that the recently named mega large telescope that is the Vera C. Rubin Observatory, formerly known as the Legacy Survey of Space and Time, the LSST, will have the capacity and the capability to find black holes or Planet Nine. In fact, Mike Brown said that if if in the first year of observation they didn't find Planet Nine using the Vera Rubin, he was going to give up. So the rate the rip. So let's think about how they're going to find this black hole. If you think about the annoying thing about black holes is that they are cold and dark. That's right. right? So you you can't see them. So you're trying to find a grapefruit <laughs> that's billions of miles away, that's completely dark and black no chance, i mean i love right? grapefruit but not that much <laughs> so the basic reasoning is this there's lots of comets out in the Oort cloud and as a comet whizzes by this grapefruit sized dark object and remember it has the mass of seven earths or thereabout <laughs> so yes it's, <laughs> it's it's got a lot of gravity that gravity will actually um interact with uh, the the interstellar medium. So there's actually an accretion disk of this very nebulous interstellar medium around this object. So the very minimum, there's going to be this warm patch in space, a sort of large, warm accretion disk that's around this black hole. And as yeah. the comet flies through this, it will start to melt. And the, as the comet melts, it gets tidally disrupted in other words a bit like when you go near a black hole you get spaghettified it's a bit like that if the bits of the melting comet that are closer to the black hole will be pulled more than the bits that are slightly further away and so it will actually get pulled apart and as it gets pulled apart it will become part of the accretion disk around the black hole during that process it will get heated up and will release this burst of energy just enough to be spotted by the Vera Rubin telescope. Pretty cool. So Siraj, this undergraduate student, who's obviously a bit of a brain box, <laughs> said, Just a bit. Uh, yeah. this, uh, this method can detect or rule out trap planet mass black holes out to the edge of the Oort cloud, or about 100,000 astronomical units. It could be capable of placing new limits on the fraction of dark matter contained in primordial black holes. <sighs> Crazy. Good old Siraj. Imagine, what, was that the kind of sentence that you were coming out with at university, Matt? Are we going for a pint now? And that was like 11 <laughs> yeah. o'clock in the morning after some very boring maths to, lecture. I need to restring my Stratocaster. Uh, it, yeah. <laughs> that kind of thing. <laughs> Pretty much exactly right. That, that was a very good impression. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, the Vera Rubin telescope is absolutely ideal to scan the entire sky sky because it, it does it twice a week so the entire sky gets sta- scanned as long as there's not too many star links in its way and <laughs> yeah. uh yeah and uh and hopefully because we don't know where planet nine is it will pick up one of these strange signatures or even maybe the movement of planet nine itself and it's sensitive enough that it can even be a small comet that gets sucked into an accretion disk or ripped apart into an accretion disk around this black hole. So it's pretty cool. I love what what Avi Loeb said about this. He says, The outskirts of the solar system is our backyard. Finding Planet Nine is like discovering a cousin living in the shed behind your home, which you never knew about. (laughs) 
<laughs> which which is a pretty pretty good description and i think like a black hole it's like it's like finding a deity living in a shed in the back that you didn't know about it's just crazy that is, that is great it is absolutely awesome so jamie do you want to listen to uh my brilliant little interview that i did I last week i absolutely would love to let's roll it yeah so th- there's a book coming out this week called the Relent- well, it is coming out this week in the UK. Let me just get the right, the Relentless Moon out on the fourteenth of July. So it's out now. So out yes. now, the Relentless Moon by Mary Robinette Cole. Yeah, uh, and it's yeah, it's obviously a sci-fi book, but it's part of a, a sort of longer series. I'll let her explain. Uh, but it's going immediately into the book club on Discord. Um, would you Excellent like to stuff. hear well, I can't this wait to hear it. Interview. Let's do it. Ecoute. The Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace back into space. So I'm joined on the podcast by Mary Robinette Cowell, who is a science fiction author and a puppeteer and a uh, audiobook narrator. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So you're you're quite an unusual guest, uh, obviously with the with the title puppeteer in there. That that's a clue to the to the <laughs> unusualness of it. So I was wondering, yes, I mean, before we we go, because obviously we, we're going to be talking about your the, the latest book that you have out. But can you tell us a little bit of your journey to to, to actually being a sort of sci-fi writer? Because it's it seems like a pretty unusual one. Sure. So um, I was one of those kids who wanted to do everything. And my parents were very indulgent and let me. So, you know, I, I, my mom talked me into, uh, talked uh, my way in to a college level astronomy class when I was in junior high. And, uh, and then I did theater and um, went off and had a 25 year career in puppetry. And somewhere in there, I, and I was writing, I should say, I was writing all the way through that. Um, but actually I had about a 10 year hiatus when I was doing the, the puppet theater full time. And then I had a um, severe puppet injury that took me out for about two years from performance and started writing again. I was like, oh yeah, I really like this. And of course I was writing the things that I had enjoyed reading. Um, so I was gravitating towards science fiction and fantasy. Uh, and because I had spent most of my life working in the arts, my my assumption was, well, if you're doing something in the arts, you can get paid for it. It may not be a lot, but you can get paid for it. So how do we do that? And uh, suddenly I have this other career. Well, yeah, that, uh, that's interesting. So, yeah, you, you actually have a, a background in astronomy as well. So, so that that was was one of the drivers that drove you into writing more science fiction-y. Stuff. Yeah, well, my in my short fiction and my first two series uh, are – uh, are both fantasy like well my yeah my short fiction is all over the map actually um but i i love science fiction um and you know i would if i had a stem background i would have applied for this last round of astronauts um i was born the year we landed on the moon my parents are very proud of the fact that i could sit up um <laughs> by myself my neighbor who was a month older than me could not um, so uh, I've, I've always been fascinated with space and it's only these books that have given me the opportunity to really indulge 
heavily in, in my extreme curiosity and interest in it. Uh, so it's, 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 it's fun. It's, it's good. <laughs> well, yeah, it, it's actually, you, you've got a, a very similar background to me, really, I, I suppose. And, and Jamie, we both, you know, I, I was born just before the last person on the moon. So, it, oh, I, yeah. I, so I, although I look older, uh, I, <laughs> I, I, uh, but yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I, I went into the arts and of course I've been, I've been doing this podcast cause I, I, I had that earning to, 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 to be to do some science stuff but uh yeah, yeah so the, the 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 premise of the of the book series so this is the third in in the book series is that correct that is correct uh it can work as a standalone um but it is obviously i would prefer it if you'd read the first two but it it, it is uh it is possible to read it without the first two so yeah um, so so what's the, the what's the premise of yeah, the series so the premise of the series is that in 1952, I slam an asteroid into Washington, D.C., which kicks off the space program fast and early and with an international effort. Uh, I, I sometimes describe it as Apollo-era science fiction that's women-centered because it's happening at a time when computers are still women. So if you want to send a computer into space, you have to send a woman. And it's like, what would that look like? So that's the... The, the first book is basically the push to get off the planet to the moon. The second book book is about getting to Mars and uh, Relentless Moon, which is the one that's coming out uh, or just out. Is um, That one is a parallel novel to the second book. So it's happening at the same time, but it's the events that are happening on Earth and the moon. So it's much more of a political thriller, a spy novel than, uh, than either of the other two. Um, but it is most of it takes place on the lunar colony, right? So I'm assuming that it wasn't that it wasn't by accident that you found a device to 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 sort of center your science fiction around women and and that, that women were, were were more central in a space race. Uh, so well, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong about that. No, but, no, but what, that is but... <laughs> correct. That that would be correct. Yeah. So uh, it's. <laughs> yeah, so what was that? <laughs> Did you search around for a for a for a device like that, or was it one of those kind of revelations that you had and went, "Ah, oh, that's a that's a that's a clever thought"? Because I mean, that's that's a really clever, neat trick. Yeah, I what I wanted was something that would have dramatically shaken the way we we see things, uh, and we see that in um, in previous generations uh, that one of the things that will um, cause society to allow women to come out of the, the gender roles that they've been put in is some type of major calamity, usually a war. Hmm. But I didn't want a war because I didn't want it to be about uh, people fighting people. I wanted it to be, you know, the, the classic term, uh, uh, man versus nature, although in this case, of course, woman. Um, and that meant that I needed a natural disaster that could not possibly be the fault of anyone on the planet. And uh, so I was like, well, let's drop an asteroid. Uh, and I actually, I say Washington, D.C. I actually drop it into the Chesapeake Bay, which um, I've learned is significantly worse um, to have a, a shallow water strike than uh, to have a deep water impact or a, a land-based strike. But, um, but yeah, it was, I hate that the way to kick things off, the, the thing that seemed most plausible for getting women into space in the 1950s was a major disaster in killing millions of people. Yeah. 
but it's it's an interesting device, isn't it? And I think, I mean, just in it, just in itself, it's an it's an interesting thought experiment to have a, an asteroid mm-hmm. hit the Earth. It's not like it it can't happen. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's one of the things when you realize how many bodies are out there and the number of times that NASA and the ESA, ESA and, and the people who are like tracking them will still sometimes go, oh, we didn't see that one. Uh, and it's like, oh, okay, <laughs> that's fine. Most of them are not passing anywhere. You know, there's no danger. The, the ones that we know about, none of them are that we're tracking are in any danger of coming and, and slamming into the earth. But there, then there's always, you know, random fireball that explodes over over X place. And you're like, oh, okay. Well, yep. no, nope, those rocks are still falling from the sky. <laughs> yep. Well, yeah, I remember the one about five years ago, the, the one that came over Russia that, yeah. that was on, on, caught on everyone's uh, dash cams. Yeah. yeah. That was, yeah, an extraordinary event. We've just, I mean, we just had Asteroid Week, I believe, as well. So, yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, it's so... So yeah, so talk us through the first the, the first book and how we get to the the third book without any if you can do it without doing any spoilers. Oh, it's actually super easy. Um, uh, a rock falls from the sky and kills a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> um, my my main and it, it happens on like page one, so I don't feel like it's a spoiler at all. Um, my main character in that book uh, is Elma York. She's a mathematician. Um, she's a very high level mathematician and a pilot. Uh, her husband is a rocket engineer. Um, he's one of the only people from the NACA, the, uh, National Aeronautics, uh, Advisory Count, no wait, National, uh, and National Advisory Council on Aeronautics, um, NASA's precursor. Uh, he's one of the only survivors from that because they were not at Langley. They weren't home. They were on vacation. And uh, so the first part of the book is basically, what do we do? Um, and Elma just realizes that the asteroid, uh, because of where it hit, had ejected so much water into the upper atmosphere that it wasn't going to precipitate out and, uh, and that you would get a runaway greenhouse effect. So that the earth was going to heat up, the oceans would boil and it would become uninhabitable. And so everyone's like, okay, let's, uh, let's try to get off this rock. Um, so the first book is let's get off the planet uh, and get to the moon. Um, and then the second book, uh, we have managed to do that. We have a permanent base on the moon with, I think, uh, 200 people at that point living and working on the moon. And we are sending the first Mars expedition to tomorrow's with Elma. So, uh, and, you know, it's all of the things that are going wrong on that trip to Mars, the interpersonal relations, disasters in space, that kind of thing. While back on Earth, there's a lot of political un- unrest that they know about um, because, you know, they're getting, they're getting news sent to them. But one of the lines that I say in that book, which is a, a promise to the reader, not a spoiler, is we're sending up the rosiest possible news. So this is all of the stuff that they are not telling the people who are on the first Mars expedition. Um, like they know that there are some riots. They do not know the extent of the civil unrest. Uh, they don't know about um, any of the, the deaths that happen back on earth. Uh, so it is, um, that gave me a lot of space, uh, so to speak, for book three to inhabit. Yeah, but book one, 
Let's get off the planet. Hey, look, that's the moon. Why don't we go there? Book two. Hey, that's Mars. Let's go there. Um. <laughs> what, wait, wait, if you were to describe your science fiction, because I know that, that, that there's, there's, there's people that sort of put science fiction in two camps. One's a, a camp that says, you know, let's explore social issues with science fiction. And the other camp is, no, let's do hard what's known as hard sci-fi where where do you where do you put yourself because it's you know it, it sounds like it's doing both things it is um i i don't think that you i i honestly think that you do a disservice to the reader um if you aren't paying attention to those things um like i have always found that when i am writing something that is science fiction that the closer i can adhere to physics um, and the way science actually works, the more interesting the book is. Like there are obviously things that I hand wave past. Like I have, I know that they had to solve the radiation shielding problem in order to go to Mars. Like that's a that's a thing that you have to solve. Um, but I don't know how they solved it. So the radiation shielding is just never going to break down. Like my characters are just never going to interact with it. We just it's pro solved problem. It's like that's fine. But everything else, if I, if my character interacts with it, if I talk about it, it is as correct as it can be. I, I worked with astronauts and uh, rocket engineers and flight surgeons and uh, orthopedic surgeons and um, just trying to get everything as, uh, as correct as I could get it. Uh, the, but on the social issue front, the thing that I I say is that it's not so much that I am writing about social issues, it's that I am not ignoring them. And I think that a lot of times people do ignore them in science fiction. Uh, in general, actually, I think people tend to ignore them. They either have a, a homogeneous cast or they don't think about the way uh, moving through the world as, uh, you know, as a particular person affects the interactions that you have with other people. And uh, so I just, I don't ignore it. So it is quite present in my books. You know, it is the 1950s and the second book begins in 1962. So we're in the middle of the civil rights movement in the US. Uh, there's, I have uh, characters from all over the, the world. Um, I have characters of every, you know, like we have characters from Africa, we have black Americans, we have Chinese Americans, we have Taiwanese, uh, we have Swiss German, we have, you know, it, it's it's a very, um, uh, I think one of the characters calls it the world's fair of space. Um, and it is, as a result, there are going to be cultural differences uh, and experiential differences in how a character has to interact with something. Like, um, even though we are in the 21st century, many of the examples of sexism that my main characters face are things that I've experienced. And when, you know, I, I remember handing um, the first book to uh, one of my contacts at NASA who read it and uh, mentioned a particular thing, uh, the woman having to put, uh, being asked if they wanted to take lipstick up into to space and, and and to you know to advertise and model that stuff and he's like wow i'm really glad that we don't have that kind of thing anymore and i'm like actually that particular example is one that i took from someone you work with and the look that went over his face yeah of just horror i'm like yeah no this happens all the time like i cannot be as forceful 
as uh, one of my male colleagues uh, because it reads very differently. Um, you know, one of, uh, it, I have, you know, it, I think it's, it's something that we see a lot right now in the media that, um, you know, the black women in particular, if they are forceful, they, you know, it's like they're, they're angry, they're loud and angry. And, and it's like, no, they're, they're actually just stating their opinion in clear, unambiguous terms. That's not loud and angry. That's a, that, but that's a, that's a burden that they have to carry, that they have to counter all the time. It's the reason that in the U.S. Black men keep being shot uh, because it, it's a different way of moving through the world. Uh, you know, they have to be afraid in different ways than, uh, than you or I would. So I just, I just, you know, didn't ignore that. Yeah. Which, which, which is an interesting, I mean, I, I think that things like Star Trek, for example, even though they're fun to watch, I think that particularly early Star Trek, I actually prefer the early Star Trek, but I watch it and, yeah. it, and it looks dated because actually they set everything in a utopian society where everyone has sort of got these homogenized morals so they say you know we've got a chinese character we've got a, a russian character and we've got a black woman and and all that on the on the on the enterprise and it seems oh it was you know it, what a fantastic thing to do but of course they've all got this homogenized culture and and therefore it it, it seems dated but i think I think that's I think that's a good thing in a way that that I think nowadays we we perceive that as being dated and and the authors like you are, are writing in a much more kind of a style that seems more realistic. Well, and I I do think that there is value in imagining what a world without racism and sexism looks like. Like sexism is still very present in the 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 first Star Trek series. Um it is in all of them, honestly, but yeah. <laughs> um, it's so rare that you see something where it's not present, um, un unconsciously present, I should say. Um, I actually don't mind it so much when it's consciously present, because then at least we're interrogating it. But um, but it, there is something, I think, valuable about imagining what that world would look like, because it gives you the opportunity to model it. People are made of narrative, so we we look for examples of how to how to move ourselves through the world uh we often turn to fiction whether it's written or or in in films as a for looking for a script uh for for how to behave in a situation we haven't encountered before so i like there is value there but too often it is not done intentionally and it is done um and and I think it does more harm. I was um, just watching a show, or rather, I should say, my parents were just watching a show. Uh, I was in the room, <laughs> and um, and we have I have remarked before on the um, the fact that there is very few people of color on this series, and uh, and and I walked in. I'm like, oh look, there's two. Uh, Two, two black characters have just come in and say, well, and they have lines this time. Uh, they're not just background characters. And um, one of them is uh, a young violinist and his dad is pushing him to do violin. And it turns out that what he really wants to do is play basketball. And I'm like, really? Really? That's, that's the thing is that his true destiny is playing basketball? I mean... 
this is a this is a, could you could you just examine the the things that exist in this that you aren't thinking about it's a it's a tricky thing isn't it i i i'm always amazed and i can't remember the name of it but one of the there's a european film categorization and i can't remember what country it's probably sweden where they where they judge a film whether it's sexist or not and one of the criteria is if if it's got the female characters have to have a certain amount of lines that don't involve talking about the male characters. Oh, and, yeah, that's that. And virtually no is, film passes it. <laughs> yeah, um, it's it's called the uh, the Bechdel test. That's it, the Bechdel um, it's, test. Yeah. Uh, there, there should be another name with it because it was two people who came up with it. Bechdel was the one who popularized it. Um, it's it's not, I don't think it's a, a formal, I would love it if someone actually did a formal rating system, but that's um, that's a, a test that um, that someone came up with just as a, a thought experiment. Uh, and I believe they're actually American. Um, they may be Swedish. Certainly the last name is. No, I, I just thought um, that one of, the, one of the actual sort of, yeah, uh, classification yeah has actually used it actually used oh, it as a, as, as a as a thing i don't know i'll have to check it but I'm, i must admit yeah it, it, i'm sure it was yeah northern european it does sound very yeah, it does it really does <laughs> but yeah but it's, it's that exact it's, it's that thing and you know and the thing is like i will catch myself doing that mm. where i will have two characters i um in this book uh relentless moon i had them you know, it was four women sitting around and I said, I had them talking about men. And I was like, oh, for crying out loud. I know I'm like, I don't do this all the time. Why is this the dialogue that I go to? And it's because that's the dialogue that I see. And you, you internalize that. So it was instead they talk about uh, uh, livestock to import to the moon and and, and dual purpose creatures. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's 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 hard, isn't it? I mean, because you know, uh, uh, someone that comes from the music world, it, w- musicians talk a, a, a musical language. They they have things like the lick and stuff like mm-hmm. that embedded in their in their brain. And I guess it must be the same for writers and filmmakers. Mm-hmm. And uh, th- th- there's all these little tropes, and it's almost you know, to let go of them is is very very difficult indeed. Yeah, yeah. And again, you know, it's like I don't I think that tropes can be useful. Uh, you know, they're they're just building blocks. It's when you when you're like when you aren't examining what it is that you're building and you keep building the same piece because you're it's like getting if you get a box of Legos and the only thing you ever build with the Legos is the thing on the box and you just keep buying the same box of Legos. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like you're completely missing the point. Hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, there's two different types of parenting. It's quite funny. I've just gone through the the parenting, and and half the half the parents would uh, make their children build the Lego thing, and they wouldn't be allowed to take it apart. My 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 one was with my kids. It's just like, yeah, build build whatever. It doesn't really matter. Yeah. You can smash it up and build the next thing. It's it's kind of I I, I much prefer that that yeah. smashing up and 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 using a little bit of imagination. Well, yeah. I mean, I should say that your that your books are award winning books. Uh, was was that something of a surprise? That something that you'd when you when you when you first started winning awards was that was did it surprise oh, yeah. did it did it surprise <laughs> you or or, or, yeah. or, or, oh, yeah. or, were, or were you cocky enough to think no no of course I I deserve it no. <laughs> um, I, uh, no, I was I was definitely surprised because um, there's a lot of good fiction out there. Uh, there's the 
the the the thing about fortunately for me coming out of theater is that I have a very realistic relationship with audience uh and and awards fall into the category of a part of your relationship with an audience and you know the thing that has been nice about that is that if I get nominated for something it's really cool but I also know that there's nothing I have no control over that at all the only thing that I can do is to write a good book and that's that is the sum total of my control uh so what I focus on when I get nominated for something is uh, the other things that I have control over. It's like making sure that I enjoy being nominated, <laughs> like using it as an excuse to, okay, I'm going to buy a really good bottle of scotch now. Uh, congratulations, me. Um, you know, I like a good frock, so I will get a very nice evening gown. And, uh, you know, and and that's that I have control over. Everything else I don't. And the I would say the other thing is that, you know, when you, when you land on the list at all, you, you, and you look at the other people on the list and you realize, you know, all of these are award worthy and, and yeah, only one of them is, is gonna, gonna take, take it home. But if you don't take it home, it doesn't change the quality of the work. Like the work is the work it's there. And that's, and, and I think that's the other thing. It's like, it's, it's there. I can't, I can't change it now that it's out in the world so when it gets um when it when it lands on a ballot it feels it feels amazing uh but i also know that um that only some of that is me uh the rest of it is is the audience ah here i'm gonna ramble slightly more at you um <laughs> when i was uh so when i this is why we mentioned the fact that I'm a puppeteer because it almost always comes up in conversation. Uh, I toured with a pre-recorded show. So it was a production of Sleeping Beauty and the soundtrack was on cassette, which is how long ago it was. Right. And, <laughs> but so it was like the music and the sound effects and the dialogue were all on tape. So your timing of every single show was exactly the same. The only thing you had any control over was the way uh, the, the body language that you did with any given line. But everything else about how that show was going to play was about the audience. And that was the thing that really made me understand that any form of theater or art exists in a space between the creator and the audience, because both of you bring something to that. So the thing that like I can write a, I can try to write a good thing, but the the piece of it that makes it uh, that makes it land on a ballot is the what other people bring to it. Like other people brought things to that novel that made it special to them, and that's not something I have control over. So that's that for me is why it's like it's it's a lovely surprise. I'm like oh. I, I I wrote this book and you have these feelings too. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, that I mean, that, yeah, I mean that, that that whole idea of the difference. I mean, you must you must know this quite a lot. The difference between working directly with an audience that you're getting direct oh, yeah. feedback from and mm -hmm. an audience that you have to wait a year and a half before your book's published and and right. you get the feedback then. I mean, that must be a completely different experience. Yeah. In fact, I, because it is I, like, I'm just not wired for that. I don't, it, it's so strange. 
So what I do when I'm writing is I have people who are reading along with me so that I can get that much more immediate feedback because it's like, how do I tell if the story is playing when, you know, when half of it comes from the audience, if I don't have audience there? Yeah. On a completely different tack, how did you build up your network of sort of advisors for your books? Because you because you've got it hard sci-fi, and you've got you've got people like astronauts telling you yeah. stuff. How, how did you build that up? Um, I I asked. They're all really <laughs> nice. Um, yeah. No, I I really I was there any special ones that that sort of that went beyond the call of duty for you. Oh, yeah. Uh, Chell Lindgren, who is an astronaut uh, with NASA currently, he's um, he was also a flight surgeon and, you know, is a, a doctor and um, did parachuting with the Air Force. So he's, he's very experienced. Um, and uh, he and he's also a giant nerd. Like he <laughs> loves science fiction. So and I would... So Chell and then Katie Coleman, uh, those two were um, huge. And then Shana Gifford, the, actually I say, I, okay, so I'm just going to start listing all of my advisors. I'm going to stop there. Everybody else, I love you. You, you were also amazing too. Um, but with the, the thing that uh, Chell and Katie and Shay would do is that I would send them a scene that I was struggling with and um I would do things where I would, I, I'm like, I, I know the emotional arc of this scene I, and I know that I want my character to be doing competence porn. So it's like, oh, look, my character is really competent at, at, at space, but I, I don't actually know what they're doing. And, and so I would say things like, you know, and then the captain said jargon as he jargoned the jargon and I would send it to them. I'm like, will you play Mad Libs? And they would just fill in the blanks. So Chell, in particular, with Relentless Moon, there's a scene that um, it will, you know, it is, uh, it's a space book. It will surprise no one that there's a disaster with a spaceship. <laughs> shocking, shocking. But they, but they never go, they never go wrong. They never, they nothing never, ever goes wrong. Um, was it a software so I, glitch by any chance? <laughs> it was, it was not a software glitch. What? Um I know it was, uh, but that was the problem was that I had seen all of these things go wrong with spaceships in films. And so I sent it to Chell. He's like, yeah, the, the spacecraft wouldn't actually survive that. <laughs> um, and I can, I can tell you this without like, I can, because I can manage to, but I basically had a, a, a lateral impact and he's like, yeah, the ships are designed to take thrust top to bottom. They're not designed to take anything from the sides. So it would just, it, it wouldn't survive that. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I rewrote it and he's like, yeah, no, they're still all dead and sent it back to him again. He's like, nope, still dead. And again, nope, dead, dead. Okay. Rocket has survived, but how are they breathing? I'm like, oh. uh, okay. How about this? And he's like, okay, they're all alive. Now the scene is really boring. And I'm like, oh. so he must have read seven or eight drafts of that scene and tweaked it with me and talked to me about like what is my goal narrative goal with this um here's a way that you can add tension to this here's an opportunity katie also took a look at the same scene um and had actually you know she's a shuttle era astronaut and so the evacuation that i was basing it on she had or the, the evacuation um procedures 
that I was using in that she had she had practiced all of those. So she could say, oh, yeah, uh, you, this 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 other thing can go wrong here. You have one more opportunity. This this failure, you can add layer that on. So that scene is now one of my favorites in the book. And it is so much better than it would have been if I had tried to get away with, you know, just like what I'd seen in the movies. Uh, but it, it's it's because of these lovely people who are willing to share their their knowledge. Is there well, I mean, look, we we talked about you know, like receiving praise. Is there is there a, a sort of is, have you ever had to face any kind of backlash about the the sort of things that you write about, or do you oh, just yeah. completely ignore it? Oh yeah, no, no. There are people who uh, who who hate the books, uh, and um, yeah, I mean that's. But again, coming out of theater, it's like eh, and. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, okay. Yeah. No. I mean, I know. I know that's going to happen. It's like I. I. I see your one star review and raise you an auditorium full of kindergartners. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Your disdain does not frighten me. <laughs> if if you were say a, a male person going through the sci-fi books on on Amazon and and for some mm-hmm. reason you were put off because you felt that it had a kind of maybe it was aimed at, aimed at women and uh, what would your answer to that be? Uh, well, basically, I I would care about that exactly as much as they care about the fact that I that all of the books are aimed at men. Yeah, like no one asks me, well, how do you feel about reading books that are aimed at men? I'm like. Well, <laughs> that's <laughs> yeah. most of the canon that gets pushed. Um, so they can suck it up and read about someone who's not like them. Everybody else does. Yeah. That's, I, <laughs> I am not going to cater to them. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if, if, someone, if someone likes space and they like it, and they particularly if they like the history of space and the Apollo era, and they are interested in, um, in books that are... Uh, at heart about a love of space and and teamwork it's about good people making choices to support each other um in space uh with disasters in space it's like if you want if you want a good space romp this is a good space romp relentless moon is a spy novel i mean it's a it is a political thriller spy novel um, that happens to be set on a lunar colony. You've got a lot of very, very good reviews. It's it's not <laughs> it's very, very few uh, bad reviews. But it has to be said when you read the bad reviews, you can kind of you can kind of you, you almost have to put your head in your hands and go, oh, really, <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. But... The, uh, the, the my my favorites are the the category of. Uh, did she have to talk about gender? And I'm like, well, yeah, actually, I did. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I can't, I can't really think of a novel I've ever read where gender doesn't come up anyway. Yes, yeah, it's, it's, no, it's like no. it would be. Well, presumably, it's, 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 it's impossible not to. It's, yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. And and, um, and and also pointless. And I think you know, if if you're trying to explore a subject, why not? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the the other thing for me, again, coming out of theater is recognizing that not every show is for everybody. So like I read I do read my Goodreads reviews and, and the Amazon reviews, but I, I'm very careful and selective. Like I read the uh, the five star reviews. Those are lovely. The four star reviews are fantastically useful because those people are my audience. But there was something about the book that wasn't quite 
didn't quite work. And like looking at that and looking for consistencies of what that pattern is, it helps me write better books in the future. One star reviews I find hilarious because they hate my books so much. And, but they aren't my audience. So I don't care about fixing that. Uh, similarly, two and three star reviews, it's like, you know, they, the, they, they wanted a different book and it's not that book and that's fine. Like they don't have to like it. Uh, the, but yeah, the, uh, the, the ones who, who object the ones, to my... the one stars. Yeah. Uh, that's, oh, a re- that's a that's a real, that's a very, very interesting, uh, point of view. The four star one. I really like that. I like the fact yeah. that, yeah, that, that actually there's some, there's some, there's always something useful to take from criticism. That's, that's, yeah, yeah that's super cool. So yeah, well, well, <laughs> when you were growing up, did you have any kind of, uh, sci-fi writers that, that you read sci-fi? Yeah. Sci-fi writers that you read yeah. uh, a lot. Oh yeah. Um, so when I was a kid, it was all, uh, you know, dragon riders of Pern and Asimov and, uh, and, you know, Heinlein and, you know, all of the, all of the, the big names that you think about Andre Norton, um, and, uh, Anne McCaffrey, I would read still, um, and then high school and college, you know, Orson Scott Card and, and uh, all of these people that, um, whose books I still enjoy, but who I have frequently a difficult time, or I should say I still have a fondness for, but I frequently have a difficult time recommending hmm. um, because they are from a different era and they were examining different things. Um, and there were a lot of things that they were not examining that caused them to have harmful, you know, elements that I would find uh, harmful as an adult, like, um, I loved Piers Anthony when I was a teen, but I look back at Spell for Chameleon, which the, the Xanth series, and, and that book is, the premise of the book is that there's a chameleon, and when she, she's got a spell on her, and it causes her to go from being beautiful to ugly, and when she's beautiful, she's dumb as a rock, and when she's ugly, she's really, really, really smart. And, and I'm like, I read that, internalized it, and didn't understand the baked in misogyny in that. And, and that's like, I could never tell someone, oh, you should absolutely read, even though there are pieces of the books that I also remember that I love, but I'm like, holy cow, those were, that's not good. Yeah. Yeah, like I, I guess, like like we said earlier on, that that that's a language that's taking forever to seem to kind of to to dissipate, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I mean yeah. I'm, I'm sure I could go down, watch, to, uh, like, flick through the channels and and find a TV program that's doing precisely that trope right now. Yeah. <laughs> Almost certainly. Um, yeah. So I, I've I've got a couple more questions for you because sure uh, yeah, but I, um, we got one question is that we always ask is if you to bring a, a hero back from the dead to to see what's going on, either in I guess in science fiction or in space in general, who would who would you bring back? Um, that's it. I, you know I saw that question and I knew it was coming, and it's still so hard <laughs> to answer. Um, the for for me, I think that it would probably be Bessie Coleman. Um, Bessie Coleman was a uh, the first black woman to get her pilot's license 
And it was at a point when you were not allowed to do that. So she taught herself French so that she could go to Paris and get her license and, uh, and, and pursue this thing that she had fallen in love with. And tragically, she, she died in an air crash. But, um, but I, I would love to see what she thought of, of actually being in space. But I, I just, I think she'd be such an incredibly powerful role model because she was a role model in, in her life. And I, I'd love to, I, I, I wish that she could have seen what we're doing now. Um, yeah, imagine that. Imagine having to having to literally <laughs> keep having to, to 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 jump through so many hoops just to do something yeah. that you that other people have no barrier for. Yeah, yeah. crazy, crazy times. Um, and yeah, we, the, the the final question is: we we have a space playlist which we have yes. space related songs. We, we you're not allowed to have David Bowie because it's either too obvious or 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 our obviously our yeah. space playlist is very full of David Bowie. But, I would uh, imagine so. Um, so the one that I picked for you is I Will Survive. Uh, and it's it's a stealth space song because there's the line, uh, and I learned how to get along, and so you're back from outer space. I just walked oh, in yeah. to find you here with that sad look upon your face. And uh, and she says out of space several times. And I'm like, okay. So an astronaut has returned, and she is done with him. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you might be an uh, but astronaut, also, but yeah. Yeah, may yeah. may not, you know, could be a technician. Um uh so yeah. I mean, yeah, you're right, could be a cosmonaut. Well, yeah, but it's going on the list. I don't think it is on the list because I don't think any of us were shrewd enough to ever spot that it had a space lyric in it. See, uh, that's what yeah, that was my good. guess. That's good. You've, like... done, you've done you've done <laughs> you've done very well. <laughs> we do have a book channel on our on our, on our Discord. Where, oh, we've been, where we've been discussing books and, and 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 science fiction books that we've been looking at, um, and yes, actually one of the one of the big, we st there was a big of an an Asimov Foundation, um, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, where we all sort of think, oh yeah, we've got to go and, and read Foundation, and uh, <laughs> yeah, some of the complaints that came back from particularly on, I think it was the second book where there was just basically no female characters of any no. depth whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, unfortunately it's something that I got used to. So. Yeah. It's, um, it's strange, isn't it? Cause Asimov seemed like he was a, a pretty progressive person, but, but. But people like people are complicated. So you can be progressive in one area and not in another. And, um, and that's like, Ursula K. Le Guin, who I should have mentioned when I was like, who did I read and love? Um, she talked about with The Wizard of Earthsea that what she had wanted to do was write this really subversive book. Uh, anytime you saw wizards, they were old white men. And so she was going to have a young man going to wizard school. First time anyone had done that, FYI. And... Um, and also that he was going to be brown and from an archipelago. And she came up with this whole beautiful thing. And she said only after the book was out in the world did she realize that uh, none of the women, except for one, had a name. They were all their titles. The girl, the witch. And most of them did not actually have speaking lines, including the woman who taught Ged how to do magic in the first place. The person who raised him does not have any speaking lines, does not have a name. 
And she realized that it was because she had grown up reading books by men for men, and that unconsciously she had also written a book for men, even though she thought of herself as a feminist. So it is, you know, it's really hard to to deprogram. And, you know, it's, it is something that, uh, that is worth doing and exploring, but it's, it's something that you have to, it, it has to be approached consciously. Yeah, I, I actually, I, I did actually read your, I, I, I should have brought this up actually, your, I think it was your New York, was it New York Times piece about, or, or I don't, in fact, I can't remember what uh, newspaper it was, had, about uh, yeah. female, about the female astronauts and the, yeah. you, it was just after the, the aborted spacewalk. spacewalk. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and I thought that there were some very interesting points that you made about really you know that it, it there's been a mistake almost in terms of 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 men uh, of, of spacesuits in particular being designed mm-hmm. around men because that because the early the early apollo stuff was based around men and that 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 really there's just an opportunity to learn from that mistake and and yeah. and, and that that's how it should be seen and i thought that was a really you know a, a super positive message that that you'd almost be mad to, to disagree with as far oh, as like yeah but you read the comments oh people did <laughs> oh yeah i mean i i mean comments in newspapers i mean where yeah. where, where do you even start or, or <laughs> i know or just facebook yeah, in general it really is but yeah i, I definitely yeah, i definitely recommend the listeners to go and check that article out i i, I will link to it because i thought it was really good oh thanks was, was that article as a direct being friends with people like Katie Coleman, I guess, mm-hmm. and and and, yeah. and and her experience, and 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 actually, yeah. really understanding the problem, and and being compelled to write about it. Yes. Um, also, again, you know, like I, I will hand them things, um, and I got gotten to go to the Neutral Buoyancy Lab, and um, to watch a, a dev run. And so Chell, you know, is in the giant swimming pool doing his thing. Take all of these notes. I have a scene that's set in the NBL. I rewrite it based on what I'd seen. Um, he had given me some additional notes. I shot it over to Katie and she said, okay, so here's some things that you need to know about being a woman in the NBL. And completely different set of notes. Um, so a lot of the things that I talk about in that article were coming from the notes that Katie gave me about how she had to pad herself. Uh, and, and there was no, NASA hadn't made padding to do this, to, to help a woman fit in a suit that is too large. So she had to take the regular padding and like do multiple layers of it in order to cobble together something because everything had to be approved. So it was... It, like this this whole rigmarole that she had to go through in order to use a suit that was basically just not designed for her you know that that's she's the smallest person to ever qualify for a spacewalk but she had to and she had to fight for that yeah that well yeah it's 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 strange i've actually just got off the call like uh, like i was saying earlier on from from someone dealing with the ethics of of withholding gravity from from um astronauts but there's definitely an ethical issue there isn't there that that, yeah. that you know yeah. that, that that nasa haven't built spacesuits yeah. <laughs> for women i mean it's just yeah. that, that that clearly is you know I, I can't see how you could see it as anything other than an ethical issue uh well you can also see it and i, I want to give this to in nasa's defense um the one thing that i will say is that it is it is now a budgetary issue 
Mm. Um, and it was a budgetary issue when they made the decision to cut things. So, but uh, when you have to make budget issue, you know, when you have to make a choice on, uh, you know, because of a budget, then what you're doing is you're saying, okay, well, we have to prioritize something. Who are we going to prioritize? And that's where the ethical thing comes in. Yeah. It's like they, yeah, yeah. they prioritized the astronauts that they had who were predominantly men at that point. Mm. Yeah, I mean, and, I, I think yeah, you. I mean, I, I, that's why I really enjoyed your 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 assessment of it. Was it was, it wasn't NASA bashing, <laughs> in no. any, by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> no. People thought it was, but uh, no, 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 no. I, I, I certainly like NASA. Very... Like the 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 choices that their modern NASA is making with the Artemis generation of suits. Um, what they're doing is they're designing it around the uh, women at the small end of the the, the height spectrum because they've recognized that it's much easier to, to scale up a suit. Hmm. And it's like, yes, yes, it is. So that's, you know, they, if they, if they were not fighting um, budget and uh, policy choices, um, I think that we would, we would see a, a much more, we would, the, the organization is moving to be more inclusive Um but there's a number of things that they've inherited that will keep them from from that for far longer than than I think anyone wants. I shouldn't say anyone. There are definitely people who are. <laughs> Thank you very much for for, for for being on on the podcast. It's been absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Re really really interesting. And Thank uh, you. your, your your book goes into the into our little Discord book recommendation for the for the spodcats to see. But I shall also put it on when the podcast comes out, which I think I think will this podcast will be out next Friday, if that's okay. Oh, fantastic! Yeah. So the book will have just come out in the US, and the ebook in the UK comes out on the twentieth of July. The interplanetary podcast is alive. There you go, Jamie. How good is Mary? Definitely going to start reading that properly. I've read a, I've read quite a bit of it because I had like a sort of pre-publication copy, but oh, I might I need go to back get involved. To, I, I want to go back to the. I want to go right back to the beginning. If you want to hear what what my old mate Katie Coleman said, said Mary Robinette Cal imagines an alternative history of spaceflight that reminds me of everything I loved about Hidden Figures. And there's there we great, go. And there's great reviews from Andy Weir, the author of Martian, of course. That's so, quite an yes. endorsement, and it's and it's multiple uh, award winning. So it's great to have an award winning author on the show. Well, that's uh, excellent stuff. Enjoy that, Jamie. I, I, Jamie, I did promise I was going to talk about some awesome launches, and you there did. are some awesome yeah. launches. Okay, go on then. Well, it's Mars. It's Mars, isn't it? It's Mars Week. Oh, hang on, I'm really. interested now. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and and so you should be. So yes, we should see a Japanese rocket taking off with the uh, United Arab Emirates Mars mission, mm -hmm. oh, which Hope, as it's called, that will be really exciting. We should do a proper Hope special, I think. Uh, yeah, so that that's hopefully taking off this week. They've got good, a couple Matt, of weeks good. to get this off, um, uh, uh, but it's not. It's um, if it misses the window, then that's a bit of a disaster. I have to wait another couple of years, uh, like um, like the old Franklin. Uh, yeah, we've got a, a, a Falcon Nine launch, which with July South the nineteenth. Yeah, 
uh, South Korea's first dedicated military comm satellite. Now, if that launches then, it will be the fastest turnaround of any orbital launch vehicle since the Space Shuttle STS-51 that only took 54 days from landing to relaunching 35 years ago. Uh, this one will be 49 days if they if they do it on the 19th of July. So that will be a record that hasn't been beaten for 35 years. And we'll, well, it is pretty huge. It starts, it's going to show that Falcon 9 is becoming actually properly reusable. So that's uh, pretty amazing. Beautiful. Then we've got a Soyuz launch, MS-15, which is going to come back down when it does deal, but with the PIRS module, the PIRS module, um, to make way for NORCA, which is, an, which is, a, which is a, an ISS module that's been kind of in a carton somewhere with the European space arm for absolutely ages. So uh, it's gonna, that all should launch in 2021 if MS-15 brings back down that module that's in the way at the moment. Then, on the 23rd of July, China are going to launch a Long March 5 with Tianwen-1, which, of course, is China's oh, yeah. first Mars mission. There we go. Everyone's in it to win so, it. A couple of Mars missions taking off this week. So that's super exciting. Jami, what do people have to do if they have enjoyed the show? There's only one website to go to, and that's www.interplanetary.org.uk. There you will find details of our social media, our merch store, and most excitingly, how to become a patron. And without the patrons, this would not be possible at all. It wouldn't. And do you know what, Matt? I'd like to give a special shout out to the patrons this week because what did you send me in the post that's that, that was paid for by them? Yes, a, a, a brand new microphone. A new microphone. So I'm hoping that I'm sounding a little bit clearer um, yeah. uh, this I'm week. I'm sure and, you uh, will do. We'll, we'll, tweak, we'll tweak it over time, obviously, because I'm getting, I'm, I'm all new to this. Um, new I'm not very tech savvy, am I, Matt? Well, but, uh, I'm getting there with your help, and so thank you so much. This is the this is an example of of what you do for the podcast. It's it's worth going to the website because uh, there's lots of pictures and links that go along with the show uh, each week, and uh, yeah. So if you if you want to sort of see more about about each all the things we talk about, you can go there, and and there's. It's all the links, all the episode links, quite in depth. Um, Jamie, Wamey, pay me. What are you doing this weekend? Um, I'm going to try and look at a comet, but oh, it's a bit cloudy God. at the moment. You've got you've you've done an amazing photo of it. Do you know what? I, I'm going to say that other than I have not been that buzzed about going out at night that, since I saw the transit of Venus. Yeah. I mean, literally, that yeah. going out to the top of my road, I literally just walked to the top of my road, looked out across the Bristol Channel, and I was thinking, that can't be it. It's absolutely massive and really yeah, it's bright. Huge. It's like, what the yeah. hell? And I was thinking, that that can't be it. That's just ridiculous. I got my camera and, and took a few pictures. Yeah, and it's it's just stunning. I was actually How long really is it hanging shocked. around for, Matt? Uh, for, I reckon for the rest of the month, you should be able to see it. I mean, wow! It, How come that long? Just out of interest. 
Well, because it's because it's millions and millions of miles away. In fact, let it's me just very just, far away. Let me go to my Instagram post because I put a few interesting facts about it that Here are worth. Uh, yeah, yeah, because it is. I'll tell you what. Uh, the comet's nucleus is five kilometers across <laughs> its oh diameter. God. It's one thousand two hundred million miles away. <laughs> A long, long way away. And and Matt, what would you recommend? I, I know you're you're pretty handy at taking the odd astrophotographer. Uh, sorry, astrophotograph. Um, what would you recommend if anyone wants to take a photo of it? Well, you really you just need. Uh, uh, quite a big lens i think a lot of cameras now have got really good high iso settings that you can yeah. put it on but if you've got a fast lens like f2 point whatever um then you should be able to get a pretty decent shot i mean this thing is is big and bright so just point it in the direction maybe if you, if you can if you can get it into automatic mode and you can sort of take a 15 second exposure if you zoomed nice. in too much, you've got to drop that exposure down because obviously you then start capturing the spin of the earth and every, all the stars will be streaky and stuff like that. Yes. But yeah, it's you can just mess around with the camera just for a bit. You've got all night. It's You have to be up at 2 o'clock in the morning um, if you're in the UK. Obviously, this completely changes wherever you are in the world. But yeah, it's quite easy to get a picture of. That the hard bit is to get a picture of both tails. If I if I if I overexpose the pictures that I took, you can actually see the second tail that's coming off the plasma tail, and it's just incredible. It's, it's amazing. Second tail. There we go. So well, yeah, send in any photos, and we'll put them up online. Yeah, absolutely. If yeah, send us your send us your photos if you've got them. That'd be awesome. And I like the shout out to George as well, who's been doing some rocket renders for me. Oh, good work, George. Yeah, what a legend. Yeah. And what are you up to this weekend, Matthew? Uh, I I think I might have another attempt at um, I might have another attempt at uh, taking a picture of a comet, and another crack at the comet. Maybe an attempt at buying a car. Just don't know. Oh my goodness. Yeah. yeah what are you going for? Another Lamborghini. Uh, it was either a Lamborghini Countach or the uh, Ferrari Diablo. Yeah, I don't know which one. One of the two. That's after I've grown my moustache. <laughs> yeah. For any patrons <laughs> listening, uh, of course we're joking. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, oh, I'm, I'm looking at Skodas, actually, bizarrely. But uh, that's oh, another great story. Yeah, well, great, great car from the from the Czech yeah. Republic, of course, which um, a lot of the great rocket heroes are from. There we go. So on that note, <laughs> I'd like to wish everybody a fantastic weekend. And and me, I'd like to do that too. Bye bye, Roger. Ah! See you soon, bye. bye.